Welcome to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We hope the following program will challenge you and encourage you in your faith journey. Today on Focus on the Family, we'll explore change and why that's really hard sometimes. Maybe you can relate to some of these comments. I have this bad habit of when I'm nervous, I talk a lot, like way too much. I need to stop being so fidgety. I'm always messing with my hair and things like that. And it's um, a self-conscious thing. I wish that I had procrastinated less. I tend to be late a lot because I try to cram everything into every minute of the day. Sometimes I tend to overthink things. I want to make sure I have all the details and then what they're thinking and what I'm thinking. I just need to slow down and realize it's going to be okay and it's going to work out. I would like to be more courageous, especially in conflict where I'm willing to speak up and say what I think. I wish I could get over the habit of constantly hitting the snooze button. (laughs) Well, this is Focus on the Family with your host, Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. John, I don't know about you, but I think change is a good thing. It's not necessarily an easy thing. Never easy, And, you know, I think those resolutions every year to lose 20 pounds or go to the gym more often are kind of the ones that are overly used. But it can be a lot of different things that we want to change, maybe reading the Word every day or as many days as possible. And then we get into it, and it just isn't doable, seemingly. We give up too quickly. Mm -hmm. So today we're going to talk about how to stick with it, how to reset and to do better uh, as you try to change those things that maybe even the Lord is saying you need to change. Yeah, yeah. and you mentioned resolutions. Uh, this is the time of year when I think most resolutions have failed, <laughs> right? And so there are some people that are fatalistic and they say, oh, why even bother? That's so true. But you know what? Hang in there. Uh, I think the Lord wants us to change over time, right? That's the whole process of what the Holy Spirit's doing in our lives. Proverbs 1.5 says, a wise man will hear and increase learning. How about that one? Romans 12 talks about the renewal and transformation of our minds. And Galatians 5 describes the fruit of the Spirit, which I can remember a Christian leader once saying to me that, you know, he didn't have any of that and only a little bit of that. And I remember saying, I don't think it's a restaurant menu that we order the from. The gifts of the Spirit, The right. gift and the fruit of the Spirit is present and available to you. And that's love, joy, peace, goodness, mm-hmm. kindness, mercy. And uh, that's what we need to be aiming for. Yeah. Well, we have a great guest to uh, talk about change and uh, the full range of change management, I guess, in uh, some way, shape, or form. We're thrilled to have Deborah Filleta back with us. She is a podcaster, a professional counselor, a speaker, and author, and she's written a book on this topic of change. It's called Reset, Powerful Habits to Own Your Thoughts, Understand Your Feelings, and Change Your Life. And we have copies of that here. Give us a call, 800, the letter A in the word family, or stop by focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast to get yours. Deborah, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Deborah. we set that up. We talked about how change is good. Uh, do you think it's good? I think change is great. <laughs> I would actually be concerned if you couldn't find something in your life that you wanted to change or grow or heal from. Why do we get stuck then not wanting to change? I think sometimes we do it the wrong way. We focus on external behaviors, behavior modification, instead of actually getting to the root. You know, maybe we'll we'll go to the store and buy different ingredients, or we'll buy more books, or we'll eat fewer calories, or we'll get that gym membership. 
And I'm not saying those things aren't important, but oftentimes we start with the external rather than starting with the internal. Yeah, Romans 7 is what we often point to when we don't want to change. Because Paul himself said, those things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I do want to do, I don't do, basically. Yeah. What was Paul dealing with? So the interesting part about that verse is the first part. For I do not understand my own actions. And I think a big part of actually achieving change is understanding. Hmm. (laughs) That's a good one. How do we take that inventory? So let me tell you (laughs) a little story to kind of help with this. When I was in college, I owned a lemon of a car. I mean, the crazy... we all did in college. Yeah. I think you're right. <laughs> we common. probably all did, but mine was like super sour of a lemon. Okay. And so one day it's finals morning. I remember I have all these finals lined up. It's December morning. It's cold outside. I go to my car, and it won't start. All of a sudden, the windows roll down, and I pull the lock out of the lock cylinder, and the entire cylinder is on my key. So out of your steering column, like the, 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 I, I, I put the lock in yeah. outside to try oh, to get into door. my car, the door, okay. the cylinder all falls out. <laughs> I mean, this car was crazy. So I had to drive to finals. I finally got the car started in 19 degree weather with the windows down. Something was wrong with the car. And it's funny because in that situation with this lemon of a car, I could have tried to duct tape the windows. I could have tried to muffle the alarm. So it was a little quieter. But all of those things would be external changes. I needed to get to the root of what was actually happening. Why was this car a lemon? And I took it into the mechanic. It turns out there was some wires crossed. A friend of mine had tried to fix it for me by installing a stereo system a few weeks before (laughs) that. And he crossed the wires. And so we had to get to the root in order for those external things to change. And this is the same thing that I tell people in my office as a licensed counselor. It's not just about behavior modification from the outside. We have to get underneath the surface and figure out the roots and what's going on from the inside if we really want to see change. Yeah, so the moral of that story is don't let your friends work on your car. Yeah, that's definitely (laughs) accurate. But when you look at it, I I guess I'm always intrigued with change uh, in that there seems to be a pain point that when it gets too bad, then there's more opportunity for that change to occur. But not always. Uh, it's like that pain point can move. And you can apply that to anything, emotional, physical. You know, you got to lose weight. You want to lose 50 pounds. And you start and you just don't stick with it. I mean, how many gym memberships are oversold because of that? We always, you know, thankfully with my son Trent, he and I are at the gym pretty regularly now. And we have the two-week January group. And being there five, six years now, I see that group come in and we always right, laugh. Right. And then two, three weeks later, it's back to normal. Same old people still coming. Why is that happening with people? Why, why do we not implement change? Because it's better for us. You know, we've got to get to the point where the reward of change is greater than the reward of staying the same. So that work of going to the gym and having a healthy body is more of a reward 
than the reward of sitting at home and eating a tub of ice cream or watching Netflix for five hours straight. The reward of a healthy body becomes the reward. And so it takes time, I think, for that to shift. And there's also obstacles that keep that from happening. In fact, in the book, you, you mentioned the noise that keeps our brains from really dialing in. What, what does that noise sound like? What does it look like? You know, if you think about it, we live in a world where there is just so much noise. There's constant data and information being drilled into our brains from commercials to podcasts to TV to our books. I mean, there's just noise everywhere we go. And I think we get so accustomed to that that we don't realize the importance of stopping and pausing and being aware of what's actually going on inside of us. Yeah. Psalm 4610, which says, be still and know that I'm God, is critical in your book. You point to it as a core component. In this day and age, I mean, it's so hard to do that, to be still, and then to take it to the next level and know that he is God. How do you find that discipline? How do you do it to get quiet, to get centered, to remember that he's God? Well, I think that's the key is the word discipline. This is not something that's going to happen naturally. You're not going to find a moment to pause and stop and block out the noise. And in fact, I believe that the first step in change and when I start the book with is the discipline of pausing. Mm. And it is a discipline. It's something you have to take the time to be intentional about. But it's not just about pausing from the external noise. It's actually also pausing from the internal noise. The You know how sometimes we can be so self-critical and we can have negative thoughts. We can have ruminating thoughts. Stopping externally and internally to listen to the voice of God. You know, Jesus was really good at this. He took the time to quiet his external world so that he could tune into his internal world. And I think we could learn a lot by applying that practice of pulling away and taking even 10 minutes a day to stop and take inventory of what's going on inside of us. You know, that can be really unsettling. I, I know of an experience that, that I had with the boys where individually I took them into the wilderness. It's through a program, something we do called Adventures in Fatherhood. But they have you go out in the woods for three hours, and they give you 10 questions to kick off the conversation. Mm. It can be very unsettling. I think especially for dads, as you're sitting there with your 13, 14-year-old, and you try to go through three hours together with nothing to distract you. Speak to that discipline, too, of when you're getting quiet with the Lord, uh, especially with your family, if they're involved, how, how do you really get quiet with the Lord and not think about all the other things? I think this is a muscle that we have to develop. <laughs> you know, going out into the woods for three hours is like asking someone to lift 400 pounds that's never lifted before. Right. You know, you have to start small. And I think starting with 10 minutes at a time um, is a really important thing. And be in tune of what are the intrusive thoughts that keep popping into my head? Or what are the the external things? Maybe my phone keeps dinging or buzzing in my pocket and it's distracting me. Or, or maybe the TV in the background and I need to turn that off. And just really take the discipline to tune out what's going on outside of you, what's going on inside of you, so that you can be focused on what God might want to say. One of my favorite passages in the book of Job is when God says to him, pause for a moment and listen. Like, Job, stop. <laughs> and, and when you look at the original language, it's not a suggestion. It's a strong command, like you need to stop. 
so that you can listen. Mm-hmm. It's the prerequisite for change. It's not a suggestion. It's actually the work of change begins in pausing because it gives our nervous system a chance to actually reset and recalibrate and tune into what's happening on the inside. It's a, probably the first, maybe second step in recognition, correct? I mean, you got to stop and think about what's being said, what's being done, how you're acting, how you're reacting. That's part of it. Right. That's a huge part of it. <laughs> it's a huge so part So it's of funny it. because when people want to change, it's like, okay, what's the first step? Well, the first step is to pause. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm ready to go. But sometimes you have to stop intentionally so that you can go. And when you go, you do it well. It might be the most difficult step in all of it. I as think you, so. As you go through it. In our culture today, yeah. it really is. I mean, the discipline of solitude is something that's really been lost. I found this pretty funny. You uh, describe a social experiment where people are asked to rate themselves on a scale compared to their peers when it comes to their healthiness, I think. You can re-describe that. Uh, what did the study reveal about the way that we perceive ourselves and others? So it was called the better than average effect. <laughs> You're not as healthy as you think you are. And, and I have proof. The better than average effect is proof. They took a group of people and they asked them questions. They asked them to rate themselves on a scale of things like kindness and morality, even how well of a driver they were. And more often than not, the average person responded that they were better than average. I'm better than my peers. I'm better than everybody else. But mathematically speaking, not everybody can be better than Mm. average. Someone's got (laughs) to fall below the mean. So we had an unrealistic perception of ourselves. They thought, well, maybe this is just, you know, the people that we pulled. So let's take this better than average effect to the prisons and see what do prisoners think. Even in the prisons, people thought they were better than average of their peers. Yeah, better than the other guy. Better than everybody else. And I think there's something to be said of that. I think oftentimes we do think we are doing better than we are, and it inhibits our desire for growth and change and healing. I could see that. Uh, How do you do that? Let's not just rush by this. I mean, how do you end up ascertaining a more realistic review of who you are and what you're about? Well, the fact that you're listening to this program and watching us here today, I think that is a really important first step because it shows that you're downloading new information of, wait a second, I might not be as healthy as I think I am. And wait a second, I might have a biased perspective of myself. What can I begin to do about that? So even that knowledge, I believe, begins to open our eyes to the work that needs to be done. But how do you really do the due diligence, the digging deeper through that solitude that you're talking about? Say, Lord, show me where I'm not as good as I think I am. And and what's the goal there? Another powerful practice that I think we need to apply is called owning your junk. And here's what I mean by that. You need to have an objective perspective of who you are. I call it outside-in perspective. Imagine yourself in a movie and you're the main character. And watch how you interact with people. Watch people's reactions of you. Watch your tone, your volume, your body language as you're speaking. These are the ways that you start to observe who you are, and how you're actually interacting with the people around you. How healthy am I? If my life were on camera display 24 hours, what parts of that movie would I start to feel a little embarrassed by and feel the need for change? We need to practice having that outside in perspective because we're so wired to think of life from the internal perspective of, well, this is who I am and this is what I do and everybody else is wrong. 
but take a moment to have that outside-in objective perspective and see what you learn. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. It's time to level up. Give your kids a safe, faith-focused, and biblically-based community, and so much more. Join the Adventures in Odyssey Club. Club members get on-demand access to the exciting Adventures in Odyssey series, including more than 900 episodes. With faith-building activities, parental controls, and a safe online community, the Adventures in Odyssey Club could be your best adventure yet. Learn more and start your free trial at adventuresinodyssey.com radio. Marriage podcasts usually go one of two ways. Relatable, but not helpful. Or helpful, but totally unrelatable to your marriage. The crazy little thing called Marriage Podcast has all the, whoa, that's me, marriage stories. And wow, I never knew that. Clinical wisdom to help your marriage thrive. Crazy Little Thing Called Marriage will be your favorite listen of your week. An amazing marriage is possible. It begins with you. Listen at crazylittlethingcalledmarriage.com. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. You know, Deborah, I'm thinking about an, a practical application of that. Your husband, John, is a big guy. And I can remember when Gene, and Gene was really good at pointing this out to me, when our boys were smaller, you know, if I was on the emotional rise with something that I was displeased with, um, she'd say, you know, you're kind of a big guy. And I think the boys, you got to be careful because when your voice is going up, I think you're freaking them out a little mm-hmm. bit. Even that observation, because, mm. you know, playing sports and that's kind of what you do. You right. you get bigger mm. to address the problem. And I think for, especially for dads that are, you know, of good size, you got to be careful with your children because they, you know, it's almost like you got to get down at their eye level so you don't scare them. Yeah. I love that Gene loved you enough to give you that feedback. Yeah. Because sometimes we need people to speak into our lives and show us our blind spots. Do you have people speaking into your life? Have you invited people to speak into your life? Maybe you're listening and you're like, oh, I guess I, I don't really have people who are helping me. You know, find people and ask them to give you that outside in perspective, because a huge part of change is taking ownership and acknowledging what we need to change. A huge part of it is what scripture refers to as confession. Confess your sins and struggles to one another so that you can be healed. I don't think that necessarily means just our sin. I think it can also refer to any area where we want to heal and grow. It has to start with acknowledging and confession. And let me, I mean, some of the difficulty there too, there's some obvious ones like that one. Then other ones where she's tried to give me some insight, I haven't responded that well to. So, I mean, you know, that's the hard part. Like, hey, wait a minute. You're not seeing it correctly. Right. Uh, She may still be absolutely 100% correct, but I'm not as open (laughs) to that correction. So how... How do we also emotionally come to that point where when it's even a harder thing yeah, and you're going, wait a minute, we need to debate this. I think it starts with what we tell ourselves about the feedback that we're getting. If I'm telling myself my spouse or my friend is just offering me feedback because they want to squash me down and make me feel bad, of course we're going to react. But if we can tell ourselves my friend or my spouse is offering me feedback to make me a better person, to make our relationship better and stronger... You interpret it a little bit differently depending on what you're telling yourself about the feedback. Right, right. You, in fact, in the book mentioned this isn't a one-player game called life. Right. And you point to the fact that people typically are wide open to helping you if you invite them. 
Right. <laughs> now, if you invite them. Now, the, the difficulty, yeah, that's key. But um, what keeps us from that invitation to others to speak to us? Fear, I mean, I, there's a handful that come to my mind. You're the expert. What keeps us from saying, hey, Deborah, if you see something in my life, why don't you let me know? Yeah, I took a poll on Instagram once asking people, what keeps you from asking for help? They said things like fear of rejection or fear of being exposed or looking weak, fear of disappointment and trusting other people. And, and I'm not sure if they're going to come through for me. But if you continue to listen, you'll hear I say fear of, fear of, fear of, because the key word there is fear. Fear keeps us from asking help and getting the support that we need. But it's not a one-player game. In order to change, you have to be humble enough to realize that it takes a community. It takes the people that God has put in your life. It takes your openness and honesty to be able to share, hey, I'm struggling in this area and I need your help to get to a better place. Let me ask you this question being a counselor. Um, when the scripture talks about fear not, and you see so many of these exchanges starting with fear, um, I would assume that our relationship with the Lord is inhibited in the same way, that we're, if we're unwilling to go to somebody that is close to us to say, can you help me better see my imperfection? How are we not doing that with the Lord too? Right, because, <laughs> because you know how we interpret how the Lord views us. Maybe we look at the Lord and we think he's looking down on us with shame and anger and disappointment. Right. And if those are the narratives playing through our mind, we're definitely not going to go to him for help. But if we realize he wants me to become better, he has a plan for me that is so much better than anything I could ask or imagine. He has my good in mind. He has my best in mind. I mean, that begins to change the view that we have of God and our willingness to go to him. Yeah. In fact, you talk about it as an act of faith um, to go to the Lord and, and I'm sure even to others to help uh, make us better. How, how is it an act of faith to do that? You know, the Bible says that when you ask, it will be given to you. And I do think there is an act of faith there in maybe overcoming our feelings, doing what we don't necessarily want to do, which is being vulnerable. But there's a reward at the end. When you ask, you will receive. When you knock, the door will be open. When you seek, you will find. But it takes that willingness. And I think... Moving forward in faith means that we don't allow our feelings to dictate our behavior and mm. we move forward into becoming better people. I would think too, especially in that marriage category, the gentle answer is so critical. Mm. Um, sometimes in marital strife, that can be really hard because there's already a, kind of the teapot's already boiling. So if you're attempting to say, honey, help me see some things I can't see, and she goes, oh, I got a list of 20. <laughs> and we start hitting them. You can get really defensive in that way. H how do you coach a couple to help one another um, without hurting each other in the process? Well, one thing I encourage couples to do on a regular basis is take inventory of their bank account. Because giving someone feedback and telling them that they need to change in an area is like making a withdrawal from the <laughs> bank account. It's an important thing. You know, we got to make the withdrawal and pay for some things. 
but it's a withdrawal. And so you balance that out with a lot of deposits, affirmation, mm. love, affection, kindness, gentleness, so that when the time comes for those important, necessary withdrawals, it's easier on everyone. Yeah. The, uh, the idea of uh, allowing somebody to speak into your life like that actually does help value them, correct? Yeah, absolutely. It helps value that person because you're taking their words seriously. You're trusting them. And this is something that I think we need to address. It's not just anybody. You don't just take feedback from anybody. You don't just ask anyone for help. I think it's important who you ask mm -hmm. and to make sure it's people that that you can trust and people who have your best interest in mind and people who really care about helping you become a better person. If you think about your life right now and you don't have a few core people like that in your life, I think it's time to ask God to reveal some of those people and be intentional about getting people like that in your life to help you along the journey of becoming better. You know, Deborah, right here at the end, I want to come back to that idea of the speck and the plank because it's right out of Scripture. It's like the Lord knew exactly how he created us and, and through sin how we would react, right? So that idea that we're so quick to look at the speck in our brother or sister's eye before we look at the plank in our own, elaborate on that and how do we really absorb that so that we're not trying to work on the other person's stuff before we work on our stuff, which is really the point of it. It is so much easier to look at what everybody else needs to change and heal. You know, I, I think the process of change has to be seen as an invitation, not as criticism and correction. And God is inviting us to a better place. He's inviting us on a better journey. He's inviting us to do this life better than we're doing it now. When we view it as an invitation, I think it makes it much easier for us to focus on ourselves and what we need to work on before we fix everybody around us. Yeah, it's so good. And what a great place to wrap up. And we have more to cover. So let's come back next time and continue the discussion on Reset. What a great uh, piece of work you've put together here. And I'd like to come back and cover some of the topics that we've missed. Can we do that? Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> and this is one of those resources. I'm thinking about the things we didn't do in January and February. But I hope that it's motivating enough that you're saying, okay, I need to grow deeper with the Lord. That's great. That's number one. Mm -hmm. I need to grow deeper in my relationship with my spouse, my family, my kids, whatever it might be. And I would hope that you would get this resource directly from Focus on the Family. And when you do, you're doing ministry with us. In fact, if you can become a monthly sustainer, and we are really concentrating on that right now, it doesn't have to be a lot. Ten or $15 is great. But if we can get a number of people to do that, it will really help even out the budget for Focus. So do ministry through Focus by becoming a monthly sustainer. And we'll send you a copy of Deborah's book, Reset, as our way of saying thank you. Join the support team and donate as you can when you call 800, the letter A in the word family, 800-232-6459, or stop by focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. And along the way here, we've talked about uh, the need perhaps for some external counsel, if you will, and we have a terrific team of caring Christian counselors here. Uh, if you're at a spot and you're kind of stuck and you don't have that core group of people that Deborah was talking about, give us a call. Uh, we'd be happy to connect you with one of those counselors and they can have an initial consult with you over the phone and we'd invite your call at 800 the letter a in the word family to connect 
On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller, inviting you back as we continue the conversation with Deborah Faleta and once again help you and your family thrive in Christ. You're listening to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We'll take a quick break and then return with the second half of this program for your family. Stay tuned. Your marriage can be redeemed, even if the fights seem constant, even if there's been an affair, even if you haven't felt close in years. No matter how deep the wounds are, you can take a step toward healing them with a Hope Restored Marriage Intensive. Our biblically-based counseling will help you find the root of your problems and face challenges together. We'll talk with you, pray with you, and help you find out which program will work best. Call us at 1-866-875-2915. People speaking into your life. Have you invited people to speak into your life? Maybe you're listening and you're like, ah, I guess I, I don't really have people who are helping me. You know, find people and ask them to give you that outside-in perspective. Because a huge part of change is taking ownership and acknowledging what we need to change. A huge part of it is what scripture refers to as confession. Confess your sins and struggles to one another so that you can be healed. I don't think that necessarily means just our sin. I think it can also refer to any area where we want to heal and grow. It has to start with acknowledging and confession. That's Deborah Faleta describing better ways that we can experience change and needed growth in our lives. And we're looking forward to hearing more from her today on Focus on the Family. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. John, I so appreciate Deborah's wisdom. I I think being a counselor, you get to see so many things and so many situations and so many excuses and so many right things when people apply biblical principles. Mm. So I'm excited to talk to her about these things and the wisdom that she brings to the discussion. She believes working toward change is good. I would agree. But we often have the wrong approach to get there, right? Mm. And then where's that pain point where it finally motivates you enough to change. But listen, if you're a committed Christian, that's what this life is about, is changing more like Christ every day. So buckle up, because if you're not moving at the pace the Lord wants you to move at, he's going to get you moving. And that's part of what we experience here. Deborah also urges people to own their own junk. We talked about that last time. So if you missed it, uh, go back and get the download or the smartphone app and Mm -hmm. check it out, because I thought it was a really helpful conversation. And I'm looking forward to today's discussion. Yeah, there was so much uh, there that we've uh, already covered and so much to come in this broadcast. Uh, Deborah's recent book, Reset, Powerful Habits to Own Your Thoughts, Understand Your Feelings, and Change Your Life is the basis for our conversation. And we've got details about it at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast, or give us a call, 800-the-letter-A-in-the-word-family. Deborah, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. Hey, let's kick it off with the brain. Something yeah. small to talk about, right? Mm. <laughs> At least in my case. <laughs> uh, the brain science there, our brains love routine and... When we have, you know, repetitive actions, we kind of go into this robotic mode, right? Making lunch, driving kids to school, it might be something related to our job. That's probably a good thing in a lot of ways, but it can also be a bad thing. Yeah. Why? Yeah. 
Our brains love the path of least resistance. <laughs> it's so human. And honestly, if we want to change, we have to start with our thought life. Let me show you an example of how our brains like the path of least resistance. I want you to do this activity with me. And if you're listening, follow along. Take your arms. Not if you're if driving. You're driving yeah. don't do <laughs> that. Not if you're driving. And, All right. and cross your arms. Okay. And observe which arm has come to the surface, your left or your right. Okay, my okay. left. Left. And now I want you to do it again, but this time I want the opposite arm. Okay, ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I got to start from scratch. Ready, okay. set, go. <laughs> See now, now Jim is really struggling with this. How about you, John? I Did you get it? Pretty naturally, because I kind of I, I I read the book. Your aunt. That's terrible. I knew you where cheated. she was going to go. With now, this. now, Jim, tell me a little bit about why that was difficult. What, what did it feel like to try to swap? My guess would be that my dominant arm wanted to be on top and my less dominant arm didn't know what to do. You've been doing it the same way over and over and over and over again for years. Your brain loves the path of least resistance. The hmm. easiest way hmm. is the way it's going to choose. And unfortunately for us, that's most commonly negative and unhealthy thinking because it takes more work to think positively. That's why scripture is constantly telling us to transform our thinking, renew mm -hmm. our brain, take our thoughts captive because thoughts lead to feelings and feelings lead to behavior. If you want to change your behavior, you start with your thoughts. In, in fact, in the book you talked about, uh, you know, I'm sure you renamed this person, but Hannah, who struggled in a more serious way. It wasn't crossing her arms. It was about those repetitive messages that she heard where she was inadequate and other things. Describe that. Hannah came from a family where she was adopted, and it was a great family. They, they were so good to her, but she didn't realize the fact that deep down she believed wrong messages. She believed that she wasn't wanted. She believed that she wasn't valuable. And when those are the roots of her thoughts, it began to impact the way that she related to people, the way that she related to herself, the way that she interacted, and it started influencing negative behaviors. But really it's rooted in that default thought, I am not lovable. I am not wanted. I am not good enough. You know, in that context, because you hear that in counseling, we hear that through our interactions with constituents, that loop that continues to play. Right. And as a trained counselor, giving, you know, that cup of cold water that just think of that woman who is hearing that loop over and over again. Mm -hmm. What is something she can do to stop doing that? First of all, we need to acknowledge that loop. I think so many people are walking around, living their life, and they don't even realize there's something unhealthy about the way that I think. So acknowledging what's on replay is an important part, and then aligning it to God's truth. One activity that I have people do is actually write out their negative thoughts for a 24-hour period, wow. and then begin to look for patterns in your thinking that are unhealthy, and then look through scripture to replace that unhealthy thinking mm. with God's truth, because that's what we need to have on replay in our mind if we actually want to see behavioral change. In fact, you talk about that, to own your own thoughts before they own you. And you root it there, I think, in uh, Corinthians 10, 5, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. What is that scripture and how does that illustrate it? It says, take every thought captive. Think about that. Yeah. When you think about taking something captive, I imagine a wild animal and you're going out in the captivity and you're taking that animal, you're training it, you're rearing it, you're making sure that it becomes tame. 
Our thoughts are like those wild animals. Mm -hmm. If we're not aware, they will end up destroying our life. We have to be intentional about taking those thoughts captive and making them obedient to Christ. That's something. I mean, that illustration, I'm sure it's exactly what Paul wanted to communicate, right? It's something we have to do every single day. I, I have a good friend that says, I am one thought away from going back to my old way of life. And I, I think that illustration, taking it captive, is such an action-oriented word. It is. It's like aggressive. It's an intentional. It's, it's not passive. You're absolutely <laughs> right. It, it, it's a fight. For some right. of us, it's a true battle and something that we have to wake up every morning and realize I need to battle for my mind because it affects my feelings and then it affects what I do and how I behave. You know, in that area of emotions, I mean, again, emotions, there's been books written about it, you know, you can't trust them and other things. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, how do we take captive those emotions that are unhealthy? How do we even take inventory of unhealthy emotions to recognize them? Well, I think the first thing we need to understand is that emotions in and of themselves are amoral. What I mean by that is they're not bad or good, right or wrong. Emotions are not a sin, but they are a signal. And we need to understand what's happening and what we're feeling on the inside. So, so I think it's important for us to see our emotions as just that, a signal, and realize it's not what we feel but what we do with that feeling that moves us down a healthy path or an unhealthy path. Can I, let me push you a little bit on that. Anger, obviously, that's an emotion. There's right. unhealthy anger. Um, how do you know when that line is being crossed and how do you pull back? Well, the Bible says in your anger, do not sin. But it doesn't say don't be angry. It just says don't sin in your anger. So it's the actions that flow from that that I think are really important. You know, I love looking at the life of Jesus. Jesus was emotional. He had a lot of different feelings, including anger. But how he responded to that feeling is what pushed him into a healthy place. That's what set him apart. When he was sorrowful, he responded with gratitude. When he was angry, he responded with justice. When he was exhausted, he responded with boundaries and taking the time to rest. He responded in healthy ways. So if we can see our feelings as a signal and then realize that we are called to respond to that signal in a healthy way, it'll move us down a, a good path. I'm smiling because I'm thinking how many husbands have said, well, I'm not Jesus, <laughs> right? That's not a good excuse as a Christian. Yes, because clearly we're not Jesus. Yeah. But the goal is for us to be moving toward him, becoming more like him every day. You know what's fascinating, Deborah, and this isn't out of your book, So, uh, but a thought that I've had a lot. Um, you think of 39 emotions. I think people, professionals, have identified 39 emotions that Jesus displayed. Yeah. Even the fact that it's that finite is kind of interesting to me. It's like we're in a box. You know, we only get these 39 emotions. It's almost like the Lord has rigged this human experience. This is what you're going to have at your hand to feel, to experience, and the processes I want to draw you closer to me as my created beings. Isn't that, to me, it's just interesting that God has put that together and this is part of the experience. Well, the beautiful thing about emotions is they're like so many different colors. A counselor will tell you, you can pull up a list of 500 emotions. Jesus showed us 39 different ones that he experienced. And and we know that's just from scripture. I'm sure there was more that, that we don't even know about. But the key is taking all of these things and allowing them to work together, our thoughts, 
feelings and behavior and moving us closer to God and making us more like Jesus. You had a, uh, this is a little shift, but you had a near-death experience that um, gave you some emotions around that. Describe what happened and what you learned from it. So an important part of changing our behavior, like we talked about a minute ago, is understanding our feelings. But another important part of changing our behavior is also questioning our feelings. Because just because you feel something doesn't make it true. And I experienced this when I went through a near-death traumatic experience. I had a miscarriage. I lost so much blood that I almost lost my life. And fast forward a couple years from that experience, the part of my brain that remembers emotional memory called the amygdala, every time I felt a little off, maybe I felt a little lightheaded, I was dehydrated, I wasn't drinking enough water, it brought me back to that danger zone of almost losing my life. It was almost like my body was alarming. Take care of yourself. Danger, danger, danger when really there was no danger. And we have that capacity in our body. When we've been through hard things or traumatic things, oftentimes our amygdala to try to keep us safe fires off. You're not safe. Danger, danger in moments where we actually are safe. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be able to question our emotions. And just because we feel something, it doesn't necessarily make that feeling a true thing. A feeling is real but it's not always telling us the truth. No, that's a good point. I think in our culture today, we're so rooted in feelings that we tend to believe the feeling is truer than truth. Right. And that's dangerous. It's very dangerous. I agree with you. And I think even Jesus went through that struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane when everything inside of him was telling him to leave. He was sweating droplets of blood. That's a fight or flight response, you know? All of the stress that's telling him, danger, 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 get out of here. But he chose to stay. He chose to trust his God over his emotions. And you uh, can notice this. I mean, depending upon your situation, there's a term where we catastrophize things, uh, especially for parents. I mean, this is true in the parenting role where Mm -hmm. we go right to the most fearful thing that we can imagine our kids might be doing the first time they take the car out at 16. Uh, or they're at a party, or whatever it might be. And it doesn't mean that it's true, but we almost talk ourselves into it being true, and then we put the kid on trial right? and say, hey, what, you know, what happened here, here, and here? And sometimes it's going to be true, and sometimes it's not. How do we take that inventory, uh, not specifically in that situation, but just generally about our emotions and keep them in check? Well, what's preceding that emotion of fear and anxiety is a thought, Thoughts lead to feelings. So what's the thought that's triggered this feeling of anxiety and fear and panic? It's the thought of something bad's going to happen to my kid. They're mm-hmm. going to get into a car accident. I'm never going to make it in life. Think of all the negative thoughts that we have that precede those negative feelings. And so a lot of times when you have an emotional response, a really strong emotional response, it's important to back up and ask yourself, What thought preceded that feeling? And is it based on truth? Or is it based on my own trauma, my own fears, my own struggles, my own insecurities? Hmm. That's a good principle, uh, not just for ourselves, but uh, as we parent. I'm thinking of a child that I can kind of talk off of a ledge, if you will, because they tend to do that very thing. They grab the negative and just keep going. So uh, what's the thought that preceded that feeling? That's good. Well, that's Deborah Faleta. She's our guest today on Focus on the Family with your host, Jim Daly. And Deborah has written a terrific book. It's called Reset. And uh, it's all about uh, doing a self-inventory and helping change occur in your life. 
And uh, we'd love to get a copy of this book to you. Stop by FocusOnTheFamily.com slash broadcast or give us a call. 800, the letter A in the word family. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. Are you remarried? Over 40% of couples are. If you have a blended family, you know how complex it can be, especially when it comes to estate planning. Ensuring that you're honoring your new spouse and all kids is essential. If you need help preparing a will for your blended family but don't know where to start, Focus on the Family can help. Download our resource, 16 Questions to Ask If You Have a Blended Family. It's our gift to you at FocusOnTheFamily.com slash BlendedFamilyEbook. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. Describe the lies or cognitive distortions, as you call them, uh, we have in our minds that interfere with our efforts or need to change. (laughs) Sometimes without realizing it, we're believing a string of lies. And when it becomes a pattern, we call it a cognitive distortion. For example, something like black or white thinking. I'm either doing a great job or I'm doing an awful job. There's nothing in between. Mm. Or someone has really, really hurt me and they can't be trusted. Or they're, I'm having a good day with them and, and they can be trusted in everything they say and do rather than having a middle ground. You, in fact, refer to it kind of dirty glasses, smudged glasses, which I could relate to. <laughs> so can you, John? <laughs> yeah, I can, yes. Uh, describe that uh, smudged glass look and how does that relate to that idea? Our cognitive distortions are the lens in which we see the world, but sometimes our lenses aren't accurate because they've been beat up, you know, they've been dirtied. Um, and, and specifically speaking, it's the hurts we've experienced, the wounds we've been through, the negative relationships, mm. and all of those things begin to impact our lens. And then we, when we put on our lens the way that we see the world, we don't see it in an accurate, clear perspective because of our own past hurts, rather than seeing it through the lens of truth, God's unchanging truth that's always clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Deborah, in the book Reset, you address the problem of childhood wounds and how they can uh, interfere with our efforts to grow. And actually, I've heard counselors say they're actually growth stunters, you know, trauma that takes place in our childhood. You share a story about a man who you counsel called, I think you renamed the person Brett to protect him. But tell us about Brett's story and, and what you saw and how you helped him. I love that you use the phrase growth stunters because I think it's so true. And oftentimes we get stuck in an emotional stage when we've been through something really hard in that Mm. season. So I worked with Brett and he was really having a hard time with decision making and feeling confident in his choices and and being able to move forward um, in his life. And as we started unpacking some of that, he went through a really hard season in childhood where he was bullied, where he was feeling picked apart by people, where he was feeling like his parents were so rigid and he couldn't make his own choices. And it's almost like he froze in that season Mm. because of those wounds. And here he is a grown man, still feeling like he's not capable, like everyone's going to pick on him and put him down, that he Mm. wasn't good enough. And he didn't feel autonomy and confidence because he had past wounds that he never actually faced. In fact, he did the opposite. He tried to stuff them. Oh, that hard stuff from long ago, that's not impacting who I am today. But it was almost as though he was stuck in that developmental stage of a child 
because he's never really found freedom and healing from some of those Well, and you're describing what we spoke about a while ago, that loop and how it gets created. I mean, that's a perfect example of that, that I'm inadequate, that I don't measure up, that people pick on me because I'm weak. I mean, boom, boom. And there it is. How do you, and you describe it as reparenting. Yeah. Um, And I'm not saying Brett's situation was that, but how do you go back and reparent yourself as an adult and change the way you think? In the process of counseling, we do this a lot. And, And the idea is that now that I'm a grown adult, with the Holy Spirit living inside of me, I can go back to some of those hard places and face them. I can begin inserting a new script Mm. rather than that old negative one that's on replay. I can go back with the help of the Holy Spirit and replace some of those things I picked up from childhood with a new script based on God's truth that I know to be true today. So we almost go back and fill in the gaps with the good stuff, with the truth of God's word. And honestly, slowly, it begins to change what's on replay today. You know, Deborah, I'm thinking of the person that is hearing that loop and they've got to do something. I mean, getting the book reset is a great step and maybe even calling for counseling. Mm -hmm. But I I just feel a burden there for a person that's feeling it. Um, As a counselor, Speak to that person that's going, oh my goodness, they're describing me. That's what I do every Mm -hmm. day. I get into that loop and I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough, whatever it might be. What's the first thing they can do? One thing that I would recommend is that they make a timeline and ask the Lord to spotlight areas of their life where they need to go back for some healing, where they need to go back for some of God's grace. What are some significant experiences in your life or in your childhood that began to impact what you believe about yourself, God, and others. Ask God to reveal some of those things and then write out a timeline. Make that map and begin praying over it. Begin asking God for help and then take that map, that timeline, to a counselor and begin working on some of those things. But the important part is that we stop and take the time to actually pinpoint and spotlight the areas that God wants to help us heal on a deeper level. Yeah, that is really good and really important to do. So let me encourage you to do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, let me let me turn a little bit of a corner as Christians. You know, we're big believers in helping others and sacrificing and service. It's really important to the Christian creed. And it is. Uh, But sometimes that well-meaning effort can get a little out of whack. It's not the right motivation, et cetera, whatever it might be. Uh, You counseled a woman you called Madeline who suffered from this And I really want you to describe it so, again, people that are in that spot can identify with it. What was Madeline dealing with and how was it unhealthy? Helping others doesn't seem unhealthy. Right. Madeline came from a childhood where she was kind of caught between two parents who got divorced and she was the middleman. She was always fixing things for the family and making sure everybody was okay. And that kind of became her role to give, 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 and give. Then she became a Christian. And guess what? You give more. You give to your church. You give to ministry. But she never realized the importance of caring for herself. When I was growing up, my dad told me that human beings are like a well. And if you continue to pour out without filling back up, eventually your well will run dry. And what you'll have left is all the gunk, the junk at the bottom of the well that's no good to anybody. Mm -hmm. And so she was kind of caught in this cycle of giving and giving and giving, but never taking the time to fill up, never seeing the importance of filling herself up. And it eventually led to a breaking point in her life where she really struggled. Let let me uh, speak 
what some people are maybe thinking that self-care just feels so non-Christian, so inappropriate. Uh, but you're really saying it's the opposite. Speak to that idea about um, the Lord's commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, for those who struggle with the word self-care, let me help you by shifting that word a little bit. What if we called it soul care? Something a little bit deeper, caring for my soul, because that's what Jesus calls us to do. And, and that's what Jesus modeled here on earth. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. I think sometimes we quickly say that last part, as you love yourself. I mean, it could have said, love your neighbor, don't love yourself. Love your neighbor more than you love yourself. But it says, love your neighbor as yourself. I think there's permission there to care for ourselves so that we can better care for others. And if we look at the life of Jesus... He practiced soul care. Hmm. He took the time to set boundaries and get away. He took the time to stop and feed himself and drink. He took the time to have fun with friends. He took the time to get away and pray and spend time with the Lord. Jesus took the time to rest when he needed a nap. And I think sometimes we neglect the care of ourselves and then we run dry and feel empty and then we can no longer do a good job caring for others. When you when you counsel someone like Madeline, who is serving out of that right thing to serve, but then can trace it back to even her mother and father's divorce and being that middle person, that's a lot of weight to carry emotionally. How do you begin to discern uh, the right things to do and the things that really diminish your well? Yeah. And that can be so hard. It is hard. And and I do think this is why the help of a professional counselor can be an important thing because ultimately we're trying to get to the root of motive. Is my motive and why I'm doing this coming out of a healthy place or an unhealthy place? For her, the motive was rooted in not just helping people, but I need to help people in order to be valuable. Right. I need to help people in order to have worth. That's not what God tells us to do. That's not the truth of Christ. We help out of the overflow. Mm -hmm. We don't help because it defines our value and worth. And so for her, it was an unquenchable thing. She continued to serve and serve and serve and serve, but she still wasn't feeling good about herself because that's not where value comes from. And she and that's why she reached a breaking point. Yeah, that is so good, Deborah. Uh, people have got to be touched by what we're talking about. And I hope if that's you, get in touch with us. Uh, don't stay in that empty well. Let us give you the resources that you need. Deborah's great book, Reset as a Starter, but also a great counseling referral network. You can talk to one of our counselors to get that started. And uh, boy, the point is, here's a rope in that well of emptiness. Mm. Don't stay there. Climb out and let us help you climb out, and we're here for you. And uh, all you have to do is pick up the phone and call. And again, if you need this resource and can't afford it, we'll get it to you. We'll trust others. We'll take care of the expense of that. If you can help us and become a monthly sustainer, that's great. Uh, be part of the ministry. A one-time gift is good, too. So just get engaged. Let's get you into a better place. That's the goal. Hmm. Yeah, Focus on the Family is here to help. We're a phone call away, as Jim said, and that number is 800, the letter A in the word family, 800-232-6459. Or you can get in touch and learn more about resources and uh, connect with a counselor through our website. That's focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast, focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. 
And Deborah, one thing I want to make sure people understand, this book is full of much more. You have 31 different chapters that hit so much more. And like a broadcast, we're only scratching the surface. So thank you for doing that hard work. And I think my point in that is that everyone's going to find a place in the reset book that you've written, a place to grow. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ. Is your marriage holding on by a thread? For deep hurt, you need deep healing that only comes from the Lord. And you'll find it at a Focus on the Family Hope Restored Intensive in Michigan. Our licensed Christian counselors will help you and your spouse get to the root of your issues in just three to five days. And it works. 80% of the couples are still married two years after attending. Learn more at HopeRestored.com and talk with a trusted advisor. That's HopeRestored.com.